Well, in the last few weeks, uh, we've been looking at some of the events after Easter, after the crucifixion, the resurrection, the time frame that he was on the earth of those 40 days ministering, what he all was doing then. Uh, Then we looked at the ascension that took place on that 40th day, and then we looked last week at Pentecost, what took place on that day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came and the promise was fulfilled. As Jesus declared that I will send the one that the Father has promised. I will go to the Father and I'll ask him to give that the Holy Spirit to me that I might pour him out upon you. And we talked about that and the empowering of the Holy Spirit and, and primarily that we might be witnesses to expand the kingdom. Today, the title of my message is simply The Holy Spirit in Action. And I'm just going to look at a specific event that took place on the day of Pentecost. I'm going to look at what I would simply call a major transformation and a classic example, Peter, that took place on the day of Pentecost. Peter is the favorite of so many of us because we can see ourselves so much in Peter. His enthusiasm is a tendency to put his foot in his mouth his tendency to take things into his own strength and, and just do what he thinks need being done, whether it's speaking up or cutting somebody's ear off with a sword, whatever. Peter would just jump in. And if you remember <clears throat> that last night when Jesus is talking to the disciples and telling them what's going to happen to him, you know, he's good old Peter. Oh, Lord, you're so wrong. I'm never going to leave you. I'll never abandon you. Matter of fact, I'll go to jail with you. I'll be killed with you. I don't care. I'm there. And, of course, Jesus looked at him. And it's interesting that there was a discussion going on, and we don't know who was all involved, but it tells us the disciples were having a conversation amongst themselves too. And their conversation, of course, was, I wonder which one of us is going to be top dog. I wonder which one of us is going to be the greatest. And I think it's interesting, even though it doesn't tell us who was doing the talking, the Lord Jesus says, Peter, I've been praying for you. The the devil's not going to have his way with you, that the Lord's going to protect. You know, I've been praying for you. I kind of wonder if Peter hadn't kind of been puffing up his chest a little bit. And then he kind of finished it with saying, don't worry, Lord, I'm there with you no matter what. And then, of course, we know how that went. We see that very night in in Luke chapter 22 where, you know, after Jesus tells him, you know, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows in the morning. You know, no way, Lord. I'm there. And I thought it was interesting that the first one, it calls it a servant girl in some translations, and in my mind, the servant girl. But it, it was probably an adult, a woman. But that, that was the first one to accuse him. Hey, you're one of those guys. You, no, I am not one of those guys. He goes, woman, I don't know him. A little while later, it just says someone else, unidentified someone else. Have you ever been intimidated by a someone else? Someone else says, you're a Galilean. You were with him. I don't have any idea. I was not. You're wrong. He denies him. And a third time, another person comes and, and accuses him and the same response. And he no more than gets it out of his mouth, his denial. And I think it's such a poignant moment because it says at that moment when the rooster crowed, Jesus and his eyes made contact. It says Jesus looked at him. At that moment, it just broke his heart. 
and it says he fled. And then we see a little while, a little later in John chapter 20, it says, on the evening of the first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear. So here we've got the disciples. We've got Peter, you know, denying Christ, running and abandoning Christ. Even after he's been raised from the dead, they're hiding behind a locked door. And this is the group that Jesus is going to leave the advancement of the kingdom to. What a bold group of mighty warriors. Good thing there were ladies in there, somebody to pick up the ball when the guys were hiding. That's how I read it anyway. The boldness that they were going to need wasn't there. But then Pentecost comes. Pentecost comes as the sound of the rushing wind that we were saying about. What appeared as cloves of fire, fire that came and dispersed over everyone that was present. And it says they all started speaking in tongues and all of the people from all the different parts of the known world were there and they all heard them speaking in their own language. And that kind of confuses me because if they heard them speaking in their own language, what did they start accusing them of being drunk for? But that was it. It says there were many listening. And, you know, in some of your translations it says they were at a house. That word house could be uh, translated a little differently because all of a sudden there's thousands of people there. And I know that because of how many got saved. So I don't think they were hidden away in a little house anymore. I think what they had probably done is they would do what every good Jew, Jew would have done in Jerusalem around that ninth hour of the day, or that nine o'clock hour of the day, they would have all been going to the courtyard of the temple to worship. And there's this group of disciples and believers. And I, I, this, is, this is Mike making it up now so you know. I just have them all pictured over in the corner, just a little bit nervous. They've been waiting in Jerusalem. Remember, they have no idea what's about to happen to them, except the promise is coming. And they're not supposed to go anywhere until it does. So in my mind, they're kind of all huddled over in a corner of a courtyard or something, but who knows. And all of a sudden it comes, and there is a sound like a mighty rushing wind. There is what appears as fire going over all of them. And then all these people are looking and they're standing there and it says some, they're in amazement, but others are mocking them and making fun of them and accusing them of being drunk. And again, remind yourself that they have no idea what's going on. I mean the disciples. And yet all of a sudden now it finally says, Peter, amongst the eleven, stands up and steps forward. We're going to be looking in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 38. But I'm not going to read it all at one time. We're going to just look at a couple verses at a time. I want to, I'm going to jump ahead. and This won't be on a slide, but I'm going to read from uh, verses 36 through 38. And then we're going to back up to verse 14. Verse 36, it's going to say when we get there, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, 
what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So this section of scripture is when Peter steps up. It's kind of what we would look at as the first sermon in the New Testament church. In verse, verses 14 and 15, it says, When Peter stood up with the eleven, then he stood up with the eleven, he raised his voice and addressed the crowd. This is the guy who was sitting there with the rest of the disciples behind a locked door not too long before this. This is a guy that has no idea, really, in the natural what just happened. I mean, imagine us. We're sitting here, and all of a sudden, something we've never, ever, ever seen before, the Lord just drops it on us. And all of a sudden, we're all responding in a way that we've never responded before. We, we don't know what's going on. This is where Peter and the, the, the apostles, the followers, would have been. And it says, he stood up and he addressed the crowd. And I like it. It says, he raised his voice. I think the boldness was rising up in him. And then he says, fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, this would be the other proselyte Jews, and this would be other Gentiles, all of you, let me explain this to you. Peter's going to explain this to him. How in the world does Peter have a clue? Let me explain this to you. And listen carefully. Some translations say, be attentive. It's like he's saying, listen, you need to understand what's taking place right now here today in Jerusalem. Everything that Jesus came to earth to accomplish, his role has been completed. The Holy Spirit has come and the church is to be ignited and empowered to spread the gospel message. And he says, listen carefully. These men are dead drunk, as you suppose. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. Verse 16. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. I just love this. Here goes Peter. All of a sudden, he's going to explain what's happened that no one's ever seen before, including him. And now he's going to interpret prophetic words that were written by a prophet named Joel anywhere. They can't decide how long ago, but anywhere between four or five hundred years before up to almost nine hundred years before. And all of a sudden, it's downloaded by the Holy Spirit. The words that were ready to be spoken were coming right from God through Peter. And he says, here's what's going on in the last days. And we are living in the last days. They started that day and they will go until the Lord returns. So he says, in the last day, God says, I am going to pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Wow, what an opening line to your sermon. All of a sudden, Peter's prophesying. He's interpreting prophecy. He's explaining what just took place in a supernatural way. 
because the Holy Spirit had came upon them. The baptism of the Holy Spirit they were waiting for had came upon them. And he makes clear, first of all, that it is the last days. And we are in the last days. And we are in at least 2,000 years plus into the last days. So however long they are, we're a whole lot closer than Peter was when he spoke these words. And he makes clear right away that what you're seeing here, this Holy Spirit, he is available to all. To all. Available to all. He is making them an offer. He is starting to make the offer. What, we've, what you see, what's happening right here, it's for everyone who wants it, will receive it. He talks about males and female, young and old, slaves and masters. Basically, he's just saying there is no distinction. This thing is for everybody who wants it, all. Verse 17 and 18, he talks about prophesying. They shall prophesy as a result of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 21, he declared that truth that where he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I'm going to talk a little bit later about being saved and calling on the name of the Lord. When it says calling on the name of the Lord there, it doesn't mean we just shout out Jesus and we're saved. Calling on the name of the Lord means that we are acknowledging who he is, what he has done, where he is at now, what he accomplished on earth. In other words, when you call on the name of the Lord that leads to salvation, it's not a mystical magic term. We holler Jesus and we're saved. It's we acknowledge all that he was, all that he did, all that he accomplished. All of it for true salvation. I think there is a lot of, lot of misinformation about getting saved. Easy salvation, if you would. Actually, I, I would call it a false conversion. It's not the real thing. Calling on the name of the Lord. But he offers it. It's there for everyone. Everyone. God is no respecter of persons. It doesn't matter who you are, where you live, what you've done. It doesn't matter what you're doing right now if it's sin. If you truly call on the name of the Lord, acknowledge what he did, came for my sins. He died for my sins, the sins I'm committing today. He died for them. But at that initial conversion, there is a true repentance of sin and acknowledge who he was. All can be saved. Don't you wonder what Peter was thinking as he was standing there talking? I do. I'm like, he'd never seen this before. He probably read the prophet Joel a million times before, and he never got it. And all of a sudden, he's standing there, and out of his mouth is coming all of this boldness, this explanation of what's taking place. He's interpreting prophecy. I mean, I I bet he could, I, I bet his mind was going 100 miles an hour as his mouth was letting truth flow out of it. Like, what is going on? And he kept right on going. Verses 22 and 23. Men of Israel, listen to this. He hits it again. Listen to this. This is not, by the way, this is not a feel-good sermon. I don't mean mine. Mine's probably not feel-good either. His is not a feel-good sermon. 
This is not, come in and let's go to church and I'm going to tickle your ears a little bit and you're going to leave here feeling good about who you are and the, all that's within you and all this energy and all you can be and all that garbage that comes out of so many people's mouths because it's garbage because they're leaving out Jesus. We are worthless and there is not one good thing in us without Christ. Doesn't that stink? Not one good thing. And yet I can turn on TV and listen to some of these people that are supposed to be men of God, and you don't even hear that. This is not a good feel-good sermon. This is not a feel-good sermon. I like this sermon. Listen to me, he says again. Men of Israel, the Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you, through him among you, as you yourselves know. Oh, golly, he's setting the trap. Jesus of Nazareth, he did signs and wonders and miracles all by the power of God to prove that he was who he said he was, and you know it. And then he goes on and says, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, Put him to death by nailing him on the cross. Welcome to church. And he doesn't leave it there. You know who he was, and you know what he did. But in there is a little bit of little bit of good news. It was all done according to God's plan. That's kind of scary because God knew what the evil in man would do but he fulfilled the purpose. Men of Israel, you nailed him to a cross. In other words, it's like Peter's standing there with a bullhorn hollering, you killed him. You killed him. You crucified him. And the reality of that is, our sin crucified him. Our sin killed him. It was because of the sin of mankind that he had to go to the cross. But God raised him from the dead. His timing is impeccable. But God raised him to, from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. It was impossible for death to hold him. If you're familiar with Scripture, you go to many funerals, you read them, you hear them read 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55, 6, 7. But when you really think about this and understand this and meditate on it, all of a sudden, those words mean so much more. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? In other words, it was impossible for death to win. When one of his saints, when none of his children dies, death does not win. There is no victory in it. It's been defeated. Now, Satan would love to use that as a lie and deception. He would love to use that as a way to attack our faith, our confidence, our trust in God. But the reality is, death doesn't win in the life of a Christian. And whether we like it or not, guilt was being assigned in Peter's message. He was accusing him. Basically, what he was saying was, you need to recognize your sin. You need to recognize your part in this. 
Like I said, this wasn't a feel-good sermon. You need to realize guilt is being assigned. Peter was speaking absolute truth, but with love. Because the guilt that's being assigned here and the guilt that I'm talking about, we need to carefully distinguish between the guilt that leads to repentance and guilt that leads to remorse. There is a a godly grief we can have about sin, and there is a worldly grief that leads us into total despair and remorse. There is a grief or remorse about sin that leads to life. There is a grief and a remorse over here that leads to death. When I am talking about grief that's brought on by repentance, it is a godly grief. When we are convicted of sin that leads us to repent, that is a gift from God. There is that enemy over here who wants to take us into worldly grieving, worldly remorse, this place that leads to nothing but darkness, despair, guilt, condemnation, shame. It brings us to death. That's not what Peter's talking about. But it's important to understand, Peter is making clear there needs to be a recognition and an owning of our sin. Sin's a big deal to God. We can cheapen it. We can justify things in our life. We can call it what we want to call it. The culture can change and say what's evil is good. Things that would never, ever, ever, ever been accepted by the church that use the Bible as their standard is now being accepted. It's not the way. When conviction comes... There is a grief that should come with it as we acknowledge our sin. Now, I am talking about sin that leads to salvation, this repentance that leads to salvation. Hopefully, you've been around us long enough to know that we believe. Once we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, all sin is washed away, past, present, future. We confess our sin now as brothers and sisters and Christians and sons and daughters to restore relationship and intimacy not to get saved again. But what's being talked about here is the kind of repentance that's necessary for true conversion, true salvation to take place. Verses 25 through 28. David said about him, and what what Peter's doing in this message, he's referring back to scriptures that they would know. And here he's referring back. And he says, David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is my right, at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill, fill me with the joy in your presence. He's going back to his Old Testament scriptures to point to Jesus. It was prophetic. And he's saying, this is the scriptures you read back then. Here's what they were referring to, the resurrection of Jesus. And he's just building the case. In verse 29, brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. In other words, he's saying, you guys that think David was talking about himself, you don't understand the scripture. He died and was buried and his tomb is still here today. 
But he was, he was a prophet, knew what God had promised him on oath, knew that God had promised him an oath, that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of this fact. He says, if the scriptures aren't enough, let me add to it personal testimony and witness of all of us who are eyewitnesses. It shows you again how important your testimony is, how important your life witness is. We may have not seen Jesus with our natural eyes, but we've experienced him in such a way that the Holy Spirit lives in us. And we are called to be witnesses, ambassadors, light in a dark world, salt. Our witness is important. It doesn't change the word of God, but our our testimony and witness can confirm it to those who are watching you and me. Verse 33. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Now he's saying, this is the deal. This is what you're seeing. It's happened right here before your very eyes. What a privileged generation. What a privileged people were seeing the promise that the Father had given. And that's what you're witnessing. That's what's taking place. Jesus has been exalted. He has been ascended. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he receives from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and he pours it out on us as his church. That's what just took place. That's what you just got to witness. He's come full circle in his message. This is what you've seen and heard. 34 and 36, verses 34 to 36, he refers back again, for David did not ascend to heaven, yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for you. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. We need to remember he is both of those things. He is the Messiah. He is the one that the Father sent to redeem the people. He is the Savior, the Messiah, but he is also Lord. And Lord is one who has an authority. He is actually a ruler. Peter is telling him, he's preparing him for for a clear message. If you accept Jesus, and it's promised that we all can, he says he is the Lord. He will become the ruler of your life. He will be the direction for your life. He will be the authority in your life. He will be Savior and Lord. It's, It's really an inseparable combination. And if he's Lord in my life, that means I've surrendered my life to him. I've knelt before him and I've, I've given him the authority in my life to live a life that's holy and righteous and pleasing to him and the Father with all the mistakes that that will include. He's making clear to them that they crucified the Messiah. I want to jump down to their response in verse 37 and 38. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. What they had heard was not a seeker-friendly message, except it was totally seeker-friendly. 
because he was laying out the only way to become a child of God. Anything else is not seeker friendly. It can be so deceptive. And he says, <clears throat> "I have <clears throat> verse 37, they were cut to the heart and they cried out to Peter, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized. And I know I'm already going late. Would you put up the slide that shows the Old Testament terms? Nahum, to repent, to pant, to sigh, to lament or grieve. There's like five or six different words used for translated to repent in the Old and New Testament. And I think it's important that we understand them. Shub, to repent, to turn or return. The idea of a radical change in one's attitude towards sin and towards God. And then in the New Testament, there's three different terms. Metan el anahi, repent, to care, to be concerned, feeling of regret. Our emotions are involved with that word when it comes to repentance. Metan ohe, repent, to change your mind, to have another mind. There's an idea of a complete spiritual change. Our intellect is involved in true repentance. God doesn't want us to be brain dead. He wants us to understand what it is we're doing. Our intellect is involved. And then apostrepho, to turn, to turn over, to turn upon, to turn unto, used to express distinct change wrought in repentance. Go ahead and put up the next slide. True repentance. For true repentance to take place, the intellect must function, the emotions must be aroused, and the will must act. When there is true repentance, the change, the result is deep and radical that it affects all of who we are. Is this what happened in my life and your life when we repented unto salvation? I often hear people being led to the Lord and repentance isn't even mentioned. Just pray and accept Jesus into your heart. Well, let's remove what's in the heart so there's room for Jesus. We need to repent. What did, what did Peter say when they says, brothers, what do we need to do? Well, just pray this sweet little prayer, will you? No, he says, repent. Repent. Act of repentance, act of faith. There is a promise when repentance occurs, that you will be saved and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But there's some requirements. Repent and believe by faith. And baptism isn't what saves. Baptism is a public demonstration of that inward change. It's an outward demonstration of an inward change that takes place when we have faith and believe what Jesus did for us. So when we look at repentance, the mind... We need to realize before we were saved, the sin that we were committing was heinous sin in the eyes of God. It separated us from him completely. There was no relationship with him possible because of that sin. We need to understand that. We need to realize that we need to take ownership of it. No excuses. Not, yeah, but Lord. Well, I wouldn't have if they hadn't. 
God is not concerned about that. And remember, I am talking about repentance unto salvation. The emotions, the feelings that naturally accompany repentance. If there's a conviction of sin and what sin is in God's eyes and what he has done and forgiven us out of his mercy and grace, it's, there's, our emotions are involved. If I don't see sin at all like a big deal, I don't think that's real repentance. My sin separates me from a holy and righteous God. My sin nailed Jesus to the cross. Just those little white lies? Yeah, those little white lies did it. Sexual impurity? Yeah, that, that, that did it. It didn't matter what it was. It's separate. We need to, when the Holy Spirit is leading us unto salvation, wooing us, convicting us, we need to take ownership and denounce our guilt. We should grieve that sin but a grief that leads to repentance, that leads to life. Because as hard as Peter's sermon was, it was truth spoken in love. Radical change. And the last part, the will. The mind, the emotions, and the will. The will, the words in the Hebrew and Greek that I went through very quickly, they make it very clear that there is an emphasis on the will, having a change of mind. It's not just... Oh, crap, did it again. Sorry, God. Talk to you tomorrow. No. God, I am so sorry the way I've lived my life. I am so grieved. By the way, my sin has grieved you. I take ownership and I admit that I was a sinner. I am a sinner. And I accept Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. And I repent when I'm doing that. And I'm turning away. But I'm not turning away to walk out into nowhere. I'm turning away and I'm going towards God. And the good news is the Holy Spirit will lead you right to him. So our mind, our will, and emotions, all involved in true repentance. And they said, what must we do? And he said, repent. And just think, they are having to hear this, especially the Jewish people. They are having to hear this message that contradicts all those hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of religious ceremonial law. And they're hearing a message that says, yeah, you blew it. Yes, you've sinned. But Jesus is who he says he is, and he came to die on a cross for your sin. Repent. Turn away from that sin and turn towards God. His grace is right there for you. Turn away from it. And the moment we do that, the promises of his sermon are there for us. When there is true repentance, at that instant you're a new creation in Christ. The Holy Spirit moves in. You become the temple of God. The Holy Spirit and salvation the promise, the conditions, repentance, and faith. And 3,000 people got saved. Good sermon. Good sermon. I just want to close because I went way too long, or somebody did. I'm going to blame somebody else. If you have never accepted Christ, that's the call. Acknowledge your sin. Remember, those of us that are saved still sin. 
but we have a different relationship. We are no longer alienated from God and lost to eternal hell. When we confess our sin, it's to maintain that intimacy with a loving Heavenly Father. But if we've never truly repented, turned away, accepted Jesus for who he is, that's what you need to do. I'd love it if you'd come and talk to me, one of the elders. It's not complicated. The gospel message is simple. But the consequences of rejecting it are horribly eternal. And for the rest of us, the rest of you that have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it should just overwhelm us with thanksgiving. The love and mercy that God has for us. Because we still sin, but he doesn't see our sin anymore. He doesn't, he doesn't look at Mike and say, you moron. Well, that was my dad, right, Mom? <laughs> you moron. How many times do I have to tell you so you get it right? That's not our Heavenly Father. He loves me no matter what. He doesn't see my mess-ups, my screw-ups, my sin. He sees through the righteousness of Christ. So don't get confused with my message. Really, this message was more for those that have never truly repented. But for those of us that have, boy, it should just overwhelm us with awe and thanksgiving of how good God is, how he loves us so much that he sent Jesus to pay the price for our sins. And he gave us the Holy Spirit to live and dwell in us so that once we've made that initial turning, the Holy Spirit will continue to lead us and we get off track, he's going to gently woo us. Sometimes not so gently spank us, but out of love. Always love. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I do praise you and thank you, and I pray, God, that anything and everything that I've said was given in the right spirit and received in the right spirit. And Lord, if there was anything that was in there, please, Lord, I pray that you will not allow it to do any damage in any of your children. But God, I pray that we would be stirred in our spirit. Father, I do pray if there's some here that do not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, there's never been true repentance. I pray, God, that this would be the day that your kingdom would increase, your children, the number of your children would increase. And Lord, for those that are, are saved, God, I thank you. And I pray we get a new and even greater appreciation for the amazing love you've demonstrated towards us through Jesus, your son. I pray that as we go our different directions this week, that you would continually bring your word to our remembrance, guide and direct us, even as Peter stood up there and all of a sudden he preached a sermon like this by your Holy Spirit, that we would also be vessels that you could use like that in all those divine appointments. Again, Lord, I just thank you for your love and mercy towards us, your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.